0: Father, as we come before you this morning to declare your holy word and make it our own, we do ask that the prayers of the saints would be given to them, Lord, and that the desires of our hearts that we bring before you in Jesus' name would be granted to us by your promise and your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Going to do something a little different this morning to open to Romans chapter 15. <laughs> Let me begin by saying once again, we have great evidence that old Stephanus's horse did, did trip while he was moving along the countryside, numbering the chapters and verses. You know the chapters and verses are not inspired by God, but are put there by men, right, to organize our thoughts. And where Paul was just about done dealing with all the subjects of Romans chapter fourteen, we can see that it did seep over into what Stephanus obviously wrongly called chapter fifteen. Just kidding, Stephanus, if you're listening. Um, so let's read the first seven verses of uh, of Romans chapter fifteen. We then who are strong, sound familiar? <laughs> we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not To please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to the deep meaning of this, your holy word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so he begins um, what I'm going to call a summary of the last chapter, but he's, he's giving us a very specific focal point here. He is speaking to the strong among us. And by strong, he means the mature in their faith, the knowledgeable in understanding, the dictates of God to his people. We talked last week about the nature of things. Remember I used the Latin phrase de rerum natura from an old Greek uh, philosopher, Lucretius. The nature of things. It's important for us to understand the nature of things. And Paul, I said, we had to assume was the stronger brother, the one who's teaching. And so he says as much here. He says we, including him, Who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. And you do that by not having pleasing yourself be your first concern in life. So, for the most part, Paul is finished with the teaching pertaining to things indifferent. He's made his point. And the one and the first point is, of course, that there are things indifferent. Not everything is equally important to God. Some things he left for us to figure out by ourselves. So not everything in life, not every personal preference, not every belief must be subject to the pr- approval of a church hierarchy of judges. Some things are personal. We come into the faith with all kinds of cultural and personal, I don't know, baggage, stuff, the things that made us who we were, and some of them have to be done away with. Some of the old practices have to be done away with. Those are the things essential. But some things are not essential. They're just practical, everyday things, and they don't come with a moral prescription. And so not everything in the life, not every personal preference, not every belief must be subject to the approval Of a hierarchy of judges, some things are personal, some are morally neutral, and therefore the apostle calls them things indifferent. That is not essential to salvation, and friends, not essential to sanctification. In other words, we may celebrate our wonderful liberties in Christ, and we ought to. The main emphasis of liberty is spoken of elsewhere in the Bible. In most cases, it refers to the freedom from what Paul called the yoke of the law. You've heard the phrase, the yoke of the law. The believers in Christ mutually enjoy this freedom from the yoke of the law. We're not bound to the same mosaic dictates of statutory law that our Jewish forebears were bound to. Christ fulfilled the law. The ceremonial laws of Moses have been fulfilled by Christ on the cross. I'll reiterate for you the classical distinctions in the law, one of the ceremonial laws, and those are the things pertaining to Christ's work on the cross. They were fulfilled in Christ's bleeding and dying on the cross and then being resurrected. There's also judicial laws and those are the laws that governed the theocracy of ancient Israel that passed away with the passing of ancient Israel and the theocracy. There is no more theocracy of ancient Israel. And then there's moral law, and that's the law that God did not entrust to man. The law he wrote with his very finger. He wrote the Ten Commandments, it says, and handed them to Moses. In fact, he had to do it twice. Because Moses, like some of us, got mad and threw down the Ten Commandments and broke them. Can you imagine? If I was God, I'd be like, what do you think you're doing? It's not like you can get those fixed without me. (laughs) And so Paul may write elsewhere of this very thing. He said to Christians, uh, uh, to to the Galatian Christians, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. In other words, don't go back to this yoke of the law. And don't be entangled entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Friends, we've got to talk about this yoke. This has nothing to do with eggs. (laughs) Does everyone know what the yoke is? I think everyone knows what the yoke is, but I'll go over it anyway. Consider the whole image of the yoke. It's an ancient wooden agricultural device. It was a big, heavy, oaken beam. beam. Thank you, Ricky. Beam. Beam works. And it's made to fit the head of two oxen and the strap around the neck. So where one went, the other had to go. You were stuck. You were yoked. One to the other. It strapped the heads of two oxen together so that they were bound to one another. Where one went, the other would go. There was even the practice of training the younger, smaller ox. You put a big ox and a small ox. The big ox knows which way to go. The small ox trying to run off here, but he can't. Why? Because he's yoked. But the main idea was that two were strapped together. They went the same way. They tread the same path. An individual choice was impossible. You couldn't make any move. That was individual because you were always dragging someone else with you. Or he was dragging you. So for the ancient Jews, Paul's image is that they were a people yoked to the law. Now where the law took them, they would go. And if you remember, friends, remember now, don't forget all of Romans because we're all the way up in chapter 15. The law had no power to bring salvation to man. It was tedious and unable to be followed to the letter by man. That's why it's referred to elsewhere as the curse of the law. What it did, though, and why it was a good thing, was it showed man their need for a savior. If you, if you followed the law, you would be saved, but no man followed the law. And then one man, the Son of God, came, and indeed he kept the law, and he kept it for us. So after the advent of Christ, that yoke was broken. The man of God was no longer bound side by side with meticulous rules and regulations. Have you read Leviticus recently? Rather, he was bound to Christ. So now you're yoked to Christ, the Savior. And Christ's desire is to give you liberty, a release from the law that bound you to the whole concept of earning your way to heaven, earning your way into the presence of God. And this concept is what prompted our Savior to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So there exists in the history of the service of God a heavy yoke and a yoke that is light. There's a burdensome yoke, and there's a yoke that offers rest. There's a yoke of bondage, and there is a yoke of liberty. And so long as you stay yoked to Christ, you may celebrate our glorious liberties in Christ. And believers ought not to be about creating new yokes. You know, it's interesting, all the way back to the very beginning, the early church was always creating some new yoke, some new artificial um, measure of rewards for people that would keep certain things, whether or not God cared about them or not. Always this thing of creating new yokes of bondage for one another. We ought not be a people who are in constant fear of offending each other. We ought to come to the place where we live our lives, in the liberty of Christ. And if we go astray and we violate one of the essential things, then the brethren are there and the gifts of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is there to convict our hearts, and we turn back. Why? Because we are yoked to Christ, and Christ is righteous. We ought not be a people who are in constant fear of offending by the things we do. Propose to enjoy in our lives. Neither should we be a, um, a people in constant search for new reasons to take offense. It seems there's always someone, the Judaizers always come to mind, they always wanted to find some reason to be offended with their Gentile brethren, who are now their brethren. So the balance of the New Testament offers many admonitions for the brethren to be slow to take offense and quick to forgive. We read from James B. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. In other words, he was observing that people were slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to wrath, or he wouldn't have written that. He says, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Friends, your offense with your brother is not producing righteousness in anything, not even you. Paul goes on in the passage to the Galatians to speak of the futility of the Gentile brethren, yearning for closeness with God by being prompted by the so-called Judaizers to submit to the law of Moses beginning with circumcision. What a horrible thing where Christ had freed us from that. That's part of the law. That's the sign that you're yoked to the law, right? In fact, the apostle goes so far as to declare that such a path may actually cancel out the prospect of your justification by faith. You've missed the point. What's your faith in if you're still calling other people to follow a law that we all know nobody could keep and Christ kept for us? Where's your faith? You've been mixed up. And that concept takes up so much more of the, of the early chapters of the book of Romans. From Romans 5.20 we read, The law entered that the offense might abound. <laughs> the, all the law can do is make the sin look worse. Because it's written down. This is what you did. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more in Christ. In many verses like that. In Galatians, again, he writes this, You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. It's a pretty hefty verse. You've fallen from grace. In other words, a man may not attempt to exceed the righteousness of God gained by the work of Christ on the cross. Quit trying to be holier than God. It only gets us into trouble. It's an offense, in fact, to God. It's an offense because it puts forth the idea that Christ's blood was not enough and you had to add something of yourself to it. It's a proof that you've missed the point with regard to how a man is justified in the first place. It's not by works of righteousness, Paul wrote to Titus not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Amen. Now, as examples of this tendency, Paul refers in Romans chapter 14 to the imposition of certain laws and customs upon each other, even though we've been freed from them. He does not deny. In fact, he reiterates there are certain essential things that we must follow in order to call ourselves Christians and to be part of the body of the saints of God. But he does not say that all things are essential. Some amount to an immature level of understanding. Those of this sort he labels the weaker brethren. They've yet to come to this understanding. Recall the Pauline distinction from the beginning of chapter 14, which says, One believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables friends eating only vegetables was not wrong you can be a vegetarian if you like you can, you can eat only vegetables if you want but you can't look at the man who eats meat and say aha I've aha <laughs> no say amen these kids today what are you going to do Where was I? Kid messed me all up. <laughs> For he, one believes he can eat all things, and he's presenting that as the person who is at ease with his salvation. He knows he's been freed from all of those torturous rules and regulations not only what you can eat, but how you have to prepare it, who you can eat it with, how much you can eat, all of these things. But he who is weak eats only vegetables. The inference here is that the personal conviction does not necessarily have its roots in the moral sphere. You can have a personal conviction, it's just a preference. I don't know where it comes from. Your cultural heritage. You know, I'm Italian. I suppose we could say uh, one believes he may eat spaghetti and meatballs, but one believes he can eat only spaghetti. so it's not a moral decision you can eat just the vegetables if you like don't eat the meat if you don't like it but don't look at the the other brethren who are eating the meat to their own delight in the liberty of christ and they're and they're doing it to the glory of god and say that somehow they're wrong and you're right or you're righter than they are so paul goes on to say that the the weaker and of the stronger that god has received them both so who are you to judge another servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. Now, you know, I labored over that some weeks ago. To his own master, he stands or falls. You'll note that this new chapter begins as a summary of the application gained from the teaching. The passage before us, however, is addressed specifically to the stronger brethren. So I've reiterated what's happened in the past, but now Paul is focusing on those who are strong, those who are comfortable with the liberties that they know some people don't like, that they celebrate. So the passage before us is addressed to the strong, referring to those who are mature in their understanding of Christian liberty. These are those who gladly celebrate their blessed freedoms with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Friends, don't make a strong condemnation against your brethren simply because they're enjoying their salvation more than you are. Sometimes I feel that's what it is. These are those who celebrate their freedoms with the joy of the Holy Spirit and the liberty that comes from an unencumbered conscience. Their conscience isn't bothered by what they do. If it was, it would be sin. Don't forget that axiom of the last verse of the last chapter. For where conscience condemns, there is no true freedom. You couldn't go on in life having a great time if your conscience keeps telling you, you know, this is not good. <laughs> and so he begins with the words, we then who are strong. So if you consider yourself a, a strong brother today, this, this passage is for you and all you weaklings can leave. Just kidding. It's funny how Paul tells them both, even though, know, the weak and the strong are both there, but he's He's speaking now to the strong, just like he does with wives and husbands. The wives and husbands are both there, but at this point he's speaking to the wives. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord and to the, to the husbands, and love your wife as Christ loved the church. And then children, obey your parents. He speaks to the different groups sometime, and you know these letters were read aloud in the churches when they received them. Which is interesting, especially here, it seems to me, which I'll touch on. So the words, we then who are strong are addressing the mature saints. And I noted last week that we must assume that Paul himself is among the stronger and the more mature in the body. I mean, I think that stands to reason. It's perfectly clear. And of course, here, he calls himself one. They're more informed with regard to our Christian duty before God. And we saw that he concluded with a sound doctrinal distinction with regard to the nature of things and he said it repeatedly in verse 14 he said of the last chapter i am i know and am convinced by the lord jesus that there is nothing unclean of himself so he takes the view that all things are pure in and of themselves right to the seat of true government the righteousness of christ and his closeness with christ by the holy spirit not Diminishing the fact that he actually met the living Christ on the road to Damascus. He said again in verse 20, all things indeed are pure. Friends, those are doctrinal statements. Those are truths you can ground into your understanding of the way things are. Yet due to the natural course of understanding and the time constraints of delivering to the church sound teaching, not everyone got the memo. There are those who retain fears regarding the spiritual nature of certain things, certain beliefs, and certain uses of those things. And their consciences are troubled by the use of said things by other, that is, stronger Christians. Um, So you see, the weak does not know he's weak in understanding. Though I will contend that after the reception of this letter in Rome... And the probability of it's being read aloud to the whole church, they know now. If you're the weak, judgmental Christian, or you're the, the strong, insensitive Christian, you were pretty much chastised by these verses when it was sent to Rome and the leaders of the Church of Rome read it aloud to the church. You suddenly knew something you didn't know about yourself. But this epistle must have gone a long way to resolving the problems of tolerance between the brethren, and I hope it does the same in our day. That's what it's intended to do. Not every dispute between brothers is equally important to God. That's why he said at the outset, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. In other words, don't beat him over the head to grow up. It doesn't happen that way. In other words, there are there are doubtful things, first of all. I take that to mean things, to mean beliefs and practices among the brethren that should not be allowed to cause judgments or disunity. Now, by this point in the series, we should be well apprised of this principle, and I'm sure that we are. And yet the apostle appeals to the spiritual strength of the strong to be exercised, If if you're strong then be exercised in your strength first by love and only secondly by insistence upon principle. In other words, friends, being right is not always the same as being righteous. Being right is not always the same as being righteous. And so Paul does not ask more of the weak in this regard. He asks more of the strong. If a godly church unity is to be built within the body of believers, we may not rely on the weaker, the untaught among us to initiate that unity. Friends, church unity has to start with the strong. It must begin with them, the free, the clear-minded, the informed. And so Paul urges the stronger members to bear with the scruples of the weaker members. It only makes sense, right? Of the weaker members, the untaught, the novice in his faith, the doubtful, even the fearful brother who's afraid that his liberties displease God, he asks only that they not judge the others. That's all that he asks of the weaker at this point. Don't judge your brother in things that he celebrates that you don't. That's all he's asking of the weaker. Of the strong, he pleads for the tolerance that comes from patience knowing that patience can only come through love. Patience with each other comes through love. And that the love he speaks of comes from sacrifice. And it comes not just from any sacrifice, but he tells us it comes from the example of the sacrifice of Christ. This is your moment, strong sons and daughters of God, to exercise your most Christ-like virtues. This is your moment. If you have knowledge, use it to cultivate love. If you have understanding, use it to encourage tolerance. If you have wisdom, use it to edify and not to despise those who find fault. And so he writes in verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, tending to edification. You're not trying to beat down the weaker brother. You're trying to beat him up. (laughs) Bring him up. So with these words, Paul has ordained everyone of strong belief to pastoral ministry. Friends, if you're one of the more mature believers here, you're you're being charged with a pastoral ministry to the other believers. And not just to impose your freedoms on them or flaunt them, but to teach and to use it to edify them and to bring them up and to bring them in. To unity with the whole body. It's the calling of every believer to minister to the strength and weaknesses of all the brethren. And the pleasing of ourselves, friends, is not our calling. Right? We have liberty to do a lot of things. But we don't have liberty to please ourselves as number one. You know what they say in the world? Look out for number one. The Christian would never say that. Christ would never say that. Number one's the one you look out for last. And so he goes on to say, even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, and that's Christ speaking. And so we have our modus operandi, you know that, that term, modus operandi? It's our motive or our reason For acting as we do. We're to put others before ourselves because that's what Christ did. We don't put them before ourselves just to be nice guys. We put them before ourselves because that's what Christ did. We are to esteem others as worthy of our sacrifice because that's what Christ did. We're to bear long with those of little faith because that's what Christ did. How many times did he say, oh, you of little faith, how long must I bear with you? You're to bear with those of little faith because that's what Christ did. And friends, little faith doesn't equal no faith. You grow in faith. It's the stronger who gives and sacrifices and endures for the sake of the weaker and not the weaker for the stronger. Don't wait around waiting for your less knowledgeable brethren to carry the load of unity in the church and to to cultivate tolerance between each other, that's the job of the stronger brethren. Because the stronger brother, first of all, knows that there are both stronger and weaker in the body. He knows the nature of it. He's already um, absorbed the teaching of these passages. So Paul modeled this very thing to one church, the church at Corinth, when he writes this. Now for the third time, I'm ready to come to you and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. In other words, I'm not coming for your stuff, I'm coming for you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. In this context, he's calling himself the parent, and the believers in his care are the children. That's why they called him Father Paul. No, I'm kidding. But the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will and he writes, "I'll very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I'll very gladly use up my whole life and strength to make sure you're edified in Christ. That's what the strong does. Why? Because he's strong. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. You see, the weaker brethren tend to judge. And he feels unloved, even though he's giving all that he has. Be that as it may, he writes, I did not burden you. We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. That's what the stronger brother does. All things for the edification of the other. To the Philippians, Paul wrote, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus In other words, Christ humiliated himself. He brought himself down. The Bible says he condescended. He was God on high, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came in the appearance and likeness of men. And he died for their sake. He's, he's, as Paul said, I've come to spend in, my whole life in service to the body of Christ. And he, we do it because that's what Christ did. I'll read to you Calvin's comments on these verses. Why will I read Calvin's comments? Because Lloyd-Jones is all done. (laughs) He didn't speak on the last two chapters. I think what happened historically uh, back in, well, the early 60s was, I think he got sick at that time and retired after 13 years on the book of Romans. I, of course, have exceeded him many times over because it only took me two. But, I mean, we're not done yet either. You know, the last chapter I'm, I'm planning on spending 15, 16 years on. But, um, so Calvin says this, he said, for as God has destined those to whom he has granted superior knowledge to convey instruction. Hello, that makes sense. If you have superior knowledge, convey instruction. Don't ask those of lesser knowledge to do the teaching, right? Some people say, no, everybody gets to teach. No, no, that's not the Christian way. No. God has destined those to whom he's granted superior knowledge to convey instruction to the ignorant. So to those whom he makes strong, he commits the duty of supporting the weak by their strength. Thus ought all gifts to be communicated among all the members of Christ. The stronger that anyone is in Christ, the more bound he is to bear with the weak. From Philippians again. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind—that's the goal, that's the definition of unity— being of one accord, being of one mind, and he goes on, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, our society makes a lot about self-esteem. The Bible is not big on self-esteem. It says, esteem others as better than yourself. So he might have given Jesus answer to Peter saying, for to everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. You know, God is equitable in that sense. If you have more, he expects more, cuz he's given you more. He's entrusted you. It's not it's not so much a gift as it's, um, it's something he's entrusted you with as a custodian to take care of. I've given you a great understanding of the oracles of God. Use them in love to edify those who have not been given the gift I gave you. And verse 4, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now, keep in mind that when Paul refers to the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. At the time of this writing, there was no New Testament. It was still a work in progress. And, of course, this apostle was at the very moment of his dictating the epistle to the Romans to Tertius. Karen found a great picture for the front, for the front of the bulletin. And it shows Paul. See, I know what he looks like, so I know that's him. And there's Tertius, who's a little better looking than Paul, but not as smart right? Um, you know, with the full head of hair, he's younger, he's got a beard, and he's doing the writing Paul's talking to him and over here the man in in armor is um, is their their host Gaius, in whose house they were while Paul wrote the letter it's enormous, it's, an, it's an awesome little point of, of history, isn't it? And it just hints of it at the end of chapter sixteen but There it is. Of course, this apostle was at the very moment of his dictating the epistle to the Romans, to Tertius, his faithful scribe and friend, he was adding to the canon new new revelation of the Holy Spirit. We may remember that Peter was aware of this. Peter was aware that Paul's epistles were scripture. And he says of Paul and the scriptures, he writes in his um, in his second, in his second epistle and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation as our beloved brother, Paul. Now, if you remember that he wasn't always the beloved brother, Paul, it took some time for him to be received into, um, the fellowship of the other apostles. It took some time, rightly. So Paul was a great famous persecutor of the church. But as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they also do the rest of the scriptures. So he's calling Paul's epistles scripture. I want you to know a little point of history all of Paul's epistles were written by the time Peter wrote that. Um, The book of Hebrews, some believe Paul wrote it. That wasn't written yet. But all the others were. I should, uh, of course, I point that out. It's obvious that he had read them, that Peter had read the epistles of Paul, or at least was aware of them. Peter makes a clear acknowledgement that the writings of Paul are equal to the Old Testament writings. Paul wrote to Timothy, Saying this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So I must tell you, friends, we live in the age of Andy Stanley. Interesting, someone brought that up to me this morning. And I bring that up because he's the descendant of a great, well-known preacher, his father, Charles. And they broke off for reasons I won't get into, family disputes and things, back in the year, uh, back in the day. And um, started his own church, and I've been told by at least one source that it's the biggest group of churches in the world. And he has formally denounced the Old Testament, as useful for the saints. Now, I'm not saying that because I heard it. I heard him say it. All right? So we live in the age of Andy Stanley, who has struck the Old Testament from his teaching and even from his respect as the oracles of God. You know how we consider the, the Apocrypha? You know, the, the books that um, the early... that some of the... Uh, I don't want to say the early church, the Catholic church included, as as in the canon. They're between the Old and New Testament. The word itself means of unknown origin. They take the Old Testament as though it's all Apocrypha. It's not really the word of God. It's really a terrible place for a, a great leader in the church to lead his people. And so I rebuke that. So Calvin made a very timely statement in this regard. Because, see, that kind of thing was already being done. Calvin wrote this in his commentaries on this verse. And though he speaks of the Old Testament, the same thing is also true of the writings of the apostles. For since the Spirit of Christ is everywhere like itself, there is no doubt but that he has adapted his teaching by the apostles and formally by the prophets to the edification of his people. In other words, the Holy Spirit inspired them all. Right? And then he goes on to say, and only Calvin can say it like this. Moreover, we find here a most striking condemnation of those fanatics who vaunt that the Old Testament is abolished. You see, it was already a problem in the 16th century and that it belongs, the Old Testament belongs not in any degree to Christians, for with what front can they turn away Christians from those things which, as Paul testifies, have been appointed by God for their salvation? Friends, we don't even know, we can't verify that Christ is Christ apart from the prophecies going back to the beginning that point directly to him, directly to Calvary, directly to the three being Crucified at once, directly to the the rich man giving his apartment, (laughs) his tomb, to place Christ in. All these things prophesied, born of the Virgin, the Lamb of God, all of these things, they come from the Old Testament revelations. We don't strike those, we cherish them. And so we have those things taught expressly in the scriptures for our edification, and friends, I must say, it's, a, it's only a weaker brother that could have come to a conclusion like that. And when you put the weaker brother in charge of the church, this is what you have. It's a sad thing. These would be the essentials for our spiritual growth. And then there are those things that in the wisdom of God, the Holy Spirit left for us to negotiate by ourselves. These are the things indifferent. Indifferent. So let scripture be our guide and we'll be able to distinguish the reality and the truth of any situation. And so if God is not judged to work to be evil, let us also refrain from judging it. I've always said to you that truth produces unity, but unity of itself cannot produce truth. I had an old friend. I'll end with this. You know who he is. He texted me after last week's sermon, apparently he tuned in on the broadcast and so Steve Bergeron, good brother, man who cherishes the word of God no i'm not I'm not going to put Steve in a bad light. <laughs> I'm going to put him in a good light. Um, he reminded me of a simple adage in the controversy over Christian liberty and things indifferent. I remember him saying this before, and I've heard the the saying, but it's a it's one of those. You know I don't like cliches, but I won't put this in that category at all. This is a good rule. Um, It goes like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in everything, charity. It's well said and rightly conceived. And so verses 5 through 7, Paul concludes the section by saying, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Amen. Father, we praise you for the teaching. For some, it is vindication. For others, it is admonishment. But Father, let all things be done to the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.